You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Mary Magdalene and Joseph, Anne Wallace will present Mary Magdalene not as the fallen woman, but one of Christ's greatest followers and the first evangelist. Then, Philip Edwards will conclude with Joseph, the guardian of Jesus whose life changed forever after he was presented with the responsibility of raising the Christ child. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to our students for today's teaching. Welcome to Arise Ministry and welcome everybody to tonight's Bible School. Um, Before I start to talk, I just want to say a little prayer. And we just want to say thank you, Lord Jesus, for Arise Ministry and all the work that goes into it, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for all the teachings that we get, whether it's online or in the classroom, Lord. And um, Lord, be with me in particular tonight as... uh, as I talk about my chosen subject, Lord, and I hope it um, I hope it challenges people, Lord, but I hope it actually brings them fresh revelation. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Okay, well, tonight my chosen subject is a lady from the New Testament, and she only ever appears in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and her name is Mary Magdalene. Now, when I say the name Mary Magdalene, I'm not going to ask anybody because that would be rude, but when I say the name, what is like the first thing that comes into your head when you think of Mary Magdalene? Well, I'm going to suggest to you, and I'm going to put it straight out there, that people talk about Mary as being a a really bad person, um, that she, in modern day times, we would use terminology like putting it about a bit, but in those days she was seen as perhaps a prostitute. Or is that true? I'm about to challenge that and and go into a study of Mary and there is a few challenges and subjective views around all of this. Mary is highlighted, as I said, in the Gospels. Um, She is very much an uncertain, confusing type person to pin down, to try and identify what she's like in terms of her life. What is much more clearer is her relationship that she had with Jesus Christ. And that's where ultimately I'm going to be concentrating much more on tonight. The Bible has people in it, such as the lady who was caught in an act of adultery, the lady who had seven demons released from her, the lady who was called Mary of Bethany, the lady who anointed Jesus with oil. Now, some scribes and some theologians have said that these are all different people. I'm working through that with you all tonight And I'd start off by saying the first two 
i.e. the woman with the seven demons, is Mary Magdalene. And the reason I know this for a fact is in Luke 8, it tells us Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus freed from seven demons. So I think we can firm, firmly tick the box on that one. The woman caught in adultery. Well, that's a little bit harder because the only account of this is in John 8. And John 8 doesn't name Mary by her name. In fact, there's no name of this lady mentioned at all. All we know that Jesus took pity on this lady and she lived. She wasn't stoned. Now, there's a view out there that it was her, but the disciples hadn't met her before, so they didn't know her name, and that's why they couldn't associate her name to this particular situation. I remain unconvinced about that, and we'll move, we'll move on to that a bit later on. What I will say is, for me, it may not be for others, but it came as quite a shock to find out that in the year 591, so it's, you know, not that long ago, there was an attempt by Pope Gregory I to put an end to all this dispute about Mary. Was she this one person of four or five stories in the book or not? So he had a debate about it and decided that Mary Magdalene actually is the woman caught in adultery, the woman who was sinful, the woman who poured oil over Jesus, and the sister to Martha and Lazarus. So it actually didn't come from the Bible about Mary Magdalene being a prostitute. It came from Pope Gregory I. I'll just let that one sink in for a second. So there we have it. All these years, the jury is still out as to whether Mary Magdalene was indeed all of these women. Now, at this point, don't think that I'm going to end up giving you all the answers to this, because I'm not. Because theologians over the years haven't done it, so I'm certainly not going to do it. What you're going to get tonight is, if you like, my take and what I think about Mary Magdalene. So the question might be, who was she? But I want you to actually think of her, what did she become? So I'm, I'm not particularly interested in the tags that we give people and to where they started from, but it's where they get to that's most important. So whether she's revered or reviled, I actually think Mary Magdalene is a very courageous and loyal woman and she was probably, and I'll say probably, and I'll come on to this in a minute, the greatest follower of Christ. Luke said Mary Magdalene got her name because like other disciples, you talk about Simon, who became Peter the Rock. We've got James and John, who, be, who were the two sons of uh, Zebedee, who were called sons of thunder. So it might not be 
so unusual that Mary was given Magdalene because Mary was a very, very common name during that time. So they had to find a, another way of identifying her. So she became known as Magdalene or Magda. There's still no proof that she actually was a woman from Magdala. There we go. What I would say about her name, and this is what links it in a bit, is Magdalene from Magda, and Magda means fortress or tower. So because they give names that kind of try to link in with the person, I'm imagining her to be quite tall and quite a strong woman. I don't see her as being, you know, wishy-washy or whatever. Um, so from that perspective, I actually think that she will not have been quite an easy pushover. What I want to say is that um, despite all of this, I still believe that she was a woman that was lost to the world. I think perhaps she was a slave to passion, but she was certainly full of guilt and remorse. I believe Jesus saw all of this in Mary, and that was when he actually um, delivered her from the seven demons that was living inside of her. When he did this, it was amazing because for her to be free of these seven demons and then immediately Jesus says to her, come with me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to be a follower. Quite powerful. But I think this was a shining example of how Jesus was with people. He wasn't interested in people's backgrounds, people's histories. He looked at the heart of people and he treated Mary Magdalene with that unconditional love. Now the Bible tells us that when Jesus was traveling, there was a lot of followers and within that there would have been a lot of women. His mother, for instance, would have been one of the women traveling with him. Mary Magdalene also was one of those women traveling with him. And the actual Bible tells us that these women, quote, were, have they, they had their own resources, which suggests that they had wealth, that they had money. So Mary herself may well have been a wealthy lady. And I want you to hang on to that point for later on in the story. Because of the walk with Jesus, I believe that Mary Magdalene was in close contact with Jesus's mother. I believe that Mary Magdalene got to know Jesus' mother very well. And when you think of their walk from Galilee to Jerusalem, 76 miles walking, they wouldn't have had modern-day boots like us, so they would have found the journey, I would have thought, the terrain quite difficult. So they would have done a lot of talking and a lot of getting to know one another and sharing things because the two, the one thing that the two ladies shared 
was their love of Jesus. As Mary went through the land with the followers, you just stop and think about what that must have been like. Think about how they come across the crowds, how she saw cripples being healed and the blind able to see and all of these sights, all these miracles that she was able to witness. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? But also I believe that Mary saw the evil that was around, the evil that was trying to put Jesus down and um, to stop him being who Jesus was, the saviour of the world, because people didn't believe this. I also find it amazing just to simply think of her walking side by side with Jesus, talking to him like nothing matters. And you think, well, okay, she's standing side by side, but you've got to remember, even in those days, the position of women in terms of their stature in society, they wouldn't have been allowed to walk side by side with their husband even. And here we are walking side by side with Jesus. That's just absolutely amazing. Mary's heart was pure and God saw her heart. And I believed that Jesus encouraged her faith and in doing so, he saw the rebirth of Mary. Mary got it. She got his teachings. She understood. And she understood the unseen spirit of God. I read many commentaries about Mary Magdalene trying to get some more facts and there was one particular commentary I read, which is clearly not based on fact, but I've put it in because I thought, I would love to have known that she said this. And it was, I was in the presence of a man <clears throat> who I ate with, who I talked with, and who I laughed with. And yet I was also in the presence of the all-loving, all-compassionate creator, who had come to earth to be one of us and to show us what was possible. I just think that's, that's really lovely. Now, if I haven't already done so, let me address the elephant in the room. Mary Magdalene, her love for Jesus was not earthly love. Mary Mary's love surpassed all, all earthly romance. It was a passion incarnate. She knew she was touched by the living Christ. Days before the death of Jesus, when he and others arrived in Bethany, both Matthew and Mark, they, their account says they attended the house of Simon the leper. But John 12 doesn't mention that it was Simon's house, but what he does say is that the dinner that was being given was in Jesus' honour, and Martha was serving the food. 
So from this, you may assume, you may believe, if Martha was serving the food, it might even have been her house. That being the case, the lady with the oil, I believe, was Mary. Mary came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. This perfume was made from pure nard. What she does next, I believe, confirms her devotion and love for Christ. She broke the jar, she poured the perfume over Jesus' head and feet. Now this perfume, it says in the Bible, was worth a year's wages. Now can you imagine you spending a year's wages in one event just like that? I mean, you just can't, can you? So, in a way, maybe it's not unsurprisingly that you get somebody like Judas who was furious. He was so furious, he vented his feelings towards Mary. And so you can imagine this scene supposed to be a social gathering, supposed to be honouring Jesus. And there we are, we've got conflicts already. I just want to read a couple of verses from Mark 14. So there we are, we've got Judas who's absolutely furious. But what does Jesus say? He says in chapter 14, verse 6, and I'm reading from an IV version. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Of her. So that would have definitely put Judas in his place, I'm sure. Now, by contrast to that, when Jesus revealed to the disciples about the fact that he was going to be leaving them, he was going to be crucified, but he'd also be resurrected, what happened then? It was Peter. He went wild. He took Jesus to one side to rebuke him. Now, just to say those words, Peter took Jesus to one side to rebuke him. My goodness. And what does Jesus say back to him? He doesn't say the same as what he said here at the supper. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, he said this, and I believe what he means is Peter should have known better. But Peter did not have things of God in mind but things of man. Hmm. So going back to this little soiree, this little celebration, the oil that Mary poured over Jesus, as I said, was nard or spike nard. It's an essential oil derived from the flowering plant of the honeysuckle. 
It's grown in the Himalayas, China and India. It is said that this fragrance can last several days. Now, I think this is quite pertinent at this point because if it lasted several days, perhaps it lasted throughout Jesus' trial and his crucifixion. Perhaps that is why Jesus said earlier, as I read out, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her because of what she did. We all know the accounts from the gospel, the story of Jesus' resurrection. It's there to read in, in all four gospels. But what do we think about Mary's part in what we read? I believe, for instance, that Mary was at the Last Supper. I believe that she was there along with Jesus' mum and other women because they would have been waiting on them, serving them drinks, food. She may have been very anxious because she knew what was ahead for Jesus. She was present throughout Jesus' crucifixion. She never left him during that entire time. We just can't begin to imagine how distressing this must have been for her and everyone that were followers of Jesus and witness him on the cross. After his death, in, in, in the early hours of Easter morning, we know that Mary Magdalene visited the tomb where Jesus' mother and other women were going because they were going to anoint Jesus' body. There was, however, and it says this in the Bible, a violent earthquake and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and the stone in front of the tomb rolled back. Mary and the other women heard, he, Jesus, will go ahead of you into Galilee. So you can imagine Mary went running back to the disciples and what she says to the disciples is that he's gone. He, he, he's gone. He's gone. They didn't believe her. They said, in fact, Luke 24 actually uses the word nonsense. He says the words, the words seemed like nonsense. Unbelievable. Peter was the one who got up and he ran to the tomb and then the other disciples followed him. So, of course, when Peter got to the tomb, he saw for himself that the tomb was empty. What do the disciples do after this is quite, it's quite challenging because the Bible says they went back to their homes. You've seen that the tomb's empty and they go back to their homes. What did Mary do? Mary was so distraught, she was so overwhelmed in grief that she just sat there and wept and wept by the tomb. This account in John 20, it's only two 
verses. But unbelievable. John 20, verses 15 and 16. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, Mary replies, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. She was really so concerned for Christ's body. Jesus then said, Mary. She turned to him and cried in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, master. She recognised Jesus straight away. There was no doubt at all that she had seen the risen Christ. So what happens with that? Mary's standing there. She's looking at Jesus and she's just gone from the depths of grief to utmost joy. And all she wants to do is run to Jesus to embrace him. And that is why Jesus says, do not hold on to me. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What Jesus was doing there and this is really, really powerful, is that he was sending her out to proclaim the good news to the apostles. Mary went running back to the disciples. And what did she say to the disciples? I've seen the risen Lord. No, she wouldn't have said that. She would have said, I've seen the risen Lord. She would have been absolutely crazy and so, so, I don't know, words fail me. I just get so excited about this. And then the same thing happens. They, they don't believe her. Hmm. Okay. Well, a bit more on that. I believe that Mary's faith and love for Jesus was stronger than anything of the disciples. She believed completely that Jesus had risen. But the disciples did not. In Mark's account, Mark 16, 9, 14, it is actually quite a, quite a telling account. Sorry, Mark 16, 9, 14, I beg your pardon. Okay, Mark says this. Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were out walking. They returned and reported it to the rest 
but they did not believe. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those that who had seen him after he had risen. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite telling, isn't it? Quite telling. I believe that Mary Magdalene was chosen before Christ's death to be that first person he appeared to because of her faith. In doing so, what Mary Magdalene became, she became the first evangelist. She became the messenger. And she was there, given the message of the good news of the risen Lord. At the beginning, you may remember I mentioned about Pope Gregory I in the year 591, who decided Mary was all these things. Well, since that date, the Catholic Church has recognised Mary Magdalene in a different way. In 1969, three ways I'm going to tell you. In 1969, Pope Paul VI removed from the liturgical calendar the word penitent, which had been applied to Mary Magdalene. And from this date, the reading in the liturgy became that of the scene where she was outside of the tomb. In recognition of her importance as a disciple, sent to bear witness of the risen Lord. In 1988, John Paul II wrote about the dignity of women, referring to Mary Magdalene as the Apostle of the Apostles. And he described her as this because he said, the woman who proved to be stronger than any of the apostles at the moment of the crucifixion and remained at Jesus' side and never stopped believing. And then the last one in 2016. The, litur the, the liturgical calendar that honoured Mary Magdalene was changed again, raising her and putting her on the same level as that of the apostles. 2016. Mm. To summarise, I believe that Christ did have a special consideration and mercy for Mary, and therefore she deserved more recognition than she got. Does it matter whether or not she was that woman in that Bible account of the adulterous woman who may have been stoned? Was that her? Does it matter? We know she was possessed by seven demons. She did hear Jesus speak of his mercy and forgiveness. And as a result of that, her life was completely transformed. The demons were left from her body and she was free to follow Christ. She was a witness to his ministry, a follower, a disciple, she outwardly, outwardly showed her love for Christ and she understood his teachings. She was present at Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. She was chosen to be the first to see the empty tomb, 
the first to see Christ's resurrection, to hear his voice and to see him. She was the first to testify to the disciples that she had seen the risen Lord and therefore she was the first evangelist. To anyone who may listen to this talk in the future, who may relate to Mary, in particular the sinner, her younger life, and feel that their sins are too great and they are worthless. Listen up, that is a lie, because Jesus is the healer. So in conclusion, Mary's sins were forgiven. She exemplifies redemption within every human person. She was chosen by the risen Lord to spread the good news to the disciples and to the world. And isn't that exactly what Jesus is asking us to do? Pretty awesome. Thank you. Okay. The person I've chosen to look at in the, uh, this part, this lesson, is, is the person Joseph. It's not going to be Joseph of the Old Testament because we're very familiar with him in many sermons that we hear or books that we can read, the man with the colourful coat, but it's the Joseph of the New Testament. Now, there's more than one, and uh, I'm going to talk about Joseph, the husband of Mary. Joseph, who became, I'm going to call him the parent of the Christ child. He's not the father, because God is the father of Jesus. But if I can get away with the, the term parent, uh, I could use the word guardian, but I'd, I'd probably stick with the word parent. Since the fall, God has, has an aspiration uh, to live with man again, to physically live with us. He lived with Adam and Eve. He fellowshiped with them. He spoke with them. They saw each other. Adam didn't need faith to believe in God because he saw him. He lived with him. It's we that need faith because we don't see him. But God's desire is aspiration. Ever since the fall, when he was cut off from this personal relationship with man, was to come and dwell with him again physically live with him. We, one day, will physically live with the Father and the Son. I personally believe that's here on the new earth. We'll be able to perhaps move through different dimensions of space, but we'll live here with him. Scripture makes this clear in quite a number of scriptures. As far back as Leviticus in 26.12, it says this, I will walk among you, and be your God, and you will be my people. The idea it conjures up of him being with us, physically walking amongst us. Ezekiel, the prophet, said this in 37 27, My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Almost very similar things he's saying. Coming into the New Testament, Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 6 and 16. As God has said, I will be with them, I will walk amongst them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And finally, that uh, verse perhaps is more familiar to us in Revelation 21 and 3 at the very end. It says, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. 
they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He says it enough times for us to get the point. It's clear, the desire of God, the aspiration of God is to dwell with us. The aspiration of Jesus is to be with us. He says this in the prayer, doesn't he? He said, I want to be with them and I want them to be with me, this thing of close fellowship. And Jesus himself says a very similar thing, uh, John 14 and 23, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus also makes this very clear. That's the aspiration, that's the desire of the Godhead, is to dwell with us, physically to dwell with us. So one day, we won't merely meet Jesus or be judged by him, we will live with him. Getting ready for that? Uh, what do you think about that? If it's not a good idea, then perhaps you're going to the wrong place. No, I didn't really mean that. Um, the idea is that we should want this. We should want it as much as he wants to be with us. We would want to be with him, to dwell with him, to live with him, to spend all the physical time that we possibly could in his company and presence. When we think of Christ's earthly parents, I'll get back to Joseph now, when we think of his earthly parents, we think of Mary and Joseph. And much attention is really uh, focused on Mary and Joseph gets completely almost left out of the picture. Scripture doesn't do this. I think religion has done this because a certain section of the church really exalts Mary. Now, I'm not trying to draw Mary down at all. If anything, I'm trying to elevate Joseph in what I'm doing here. But somehow Mary has been exalted, I believe, uh, beyond and above the, that which Scripture indicates she should be. I thought... Sometimes scripture presents things in certain ways. So I thought, I wonder if scripture says Mary and Joseph or Joseph and Mary, because it would be important, wouldn't it? As I looked, I found that both appeared, Mary and Joseph and Joseph and Mary. So I couldn't draw any conclusions apart from the fact they were equal in the sight of God. Uh, and probably that's true, isn't it? Because we're all equal in the sight of God. Man, women, we're all equal in the sight of God. We have different roles and different responsibilities and we have to recognise what they are and we enter into them and we embrace them, but we're all equal in his sight. God then brought Mary and Joseph together to parent the God-child, as it were, in the world. But of course he grew up to be more than a child and as far as we know, he stayed at home all the time into his adult life. She would give birth to him, the Christ, and she would nurture him. He, Joseph, would provide a secure environment for this child to grow up in, and also he would be something of an example. We know the very formative years of a child growing are important. Maybe the first seven or eight years are the most important. 
where simply they're looking around them at other siblings, the mum and the dad, and their world, what they believe, is formed by what they see and the influence that these closest to them, those that love them, have on their lives. So I'm suggesting to you that Joseph played a very vital role in the life of Jesus, the Son of God. You say, well, why isn't more said about him? Actually, the Bible isn't about the people that's in it. It's about God. Sometimes we miss the point there. If we did a study of, say, Daniel, uh, we think it's all about Daniel. Well, there's is a bit about Daniel, but it's not really all about Daniel. It's about God. It's about how God dealt with Daniel and how Daniel dealt with God. Of course, there's truth comes out about all these different characters that we can look at, but all of the characters, it's about how God related to them. It's about understanding God and God's activities with us. What do we know then about this man, Joseph? We're told he was righteous. In the sight of God, he was a righteous man. So he lived according to the law. That's what, before Christ came and died for us, righteous people would have been people who had faith in God and would have done their utmost to keep the law. And if they broke the law, they would have gone through the ceremonial ways of getting themselves uh, cleansed of the breaking of that law. We know that he was a descendant of David. So there was some nobility in him. Now, there were many, many descendants, because over the, uh, you know, the thousands of years, the, the, the thousand years that, between David and, and Christ and so forth, there were lots and lots of descendants. So he was out there, but he, he did have this noble line within him. Uh, he wasn't a wealthy man. There was no uh, wealth attached to the fact that he was of the line. In fact, he was a, a tradesman. He was a builder, a carpenter. Uh, we think of him as a carpenter, but of course carpenters build as well, don't they? All the wood that's in here, uh, whether it's the structures of the roof or anything, it, it was a carpenter that did it. It was a man who worked with wood. So it would have been building and carpentry, a mixture of the two. He was called by God for a special task like you, like me. You say this was a bit special. Okay, granted, but we've all got a calling on our lives. He's graced us and gifted us according to our calling and we operate with that calling in our lives. They were attracted to each other, I'm presuming, although in Bible times marriages were arranged uh, but we don't know. I'm going to assume that they were attracted and uh, there was an arrangement made between the families. It is suggested that probably she would have been about 15 when they got married, but he could have been anything from 35 to 40, a good bit older. That's just the way it was traditionally. So have these thoughts in mind because we know that later when Christ goes to the cross there is no mention of Joseph so one would have assumed that he was 
off the scene. He had passed away by then, which if he got married when he was around 40, when Jesus went to the cross, he would have been in his mid-70s, which would all make sense of him not being there. Whereas Mary, she would only be in her late 40s when Christ went to the cross. We know the story only too well, don't we? I mean, we're told every year around December the 25th, clearly what the story is. Mary conceives God's child through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is called by God to parent the child and to protect them both. That's the job that God has given us. Through a number of dreams, Joseph is reassured and directed by God what to do. He gets about four of these dreams. The angel, the angel appeared to Mary and spoke to her just the once. An angel didn't appear to Joseph. He had dreams and in the dreams he saw the angel. As I said, at his death there is no mention of Joseph because he's probably passed away. The only other account that we have of Joseph was when Jesus was 12. Remember, he got left behind some way uh, in Jerusalem, and when they were traveling back, they thought, oh dear, we've left our son behind, just like that, bit of an accident. So they hurry back, as it were, to Jerusalem. It takes two or three days. It's, I think it says three days or something, and they find him there. Do you ever let your imagination just run on a little bit? Where did he sleep for those two or three nights? Um, did he know anyone else there? Did he have other friends there? Were there other people he knew that were still there and remaining? Um, what was he doing all day? How did he get food? What, anyway, it doesn't matter. Let's move on. When an angel explained to Joseph through a dream that he would be responsible for raising the Son of God, for raising the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, it must have come as a bit of a shock. Now, we understand the shock that Mary had, like, you're going to have a baby and it's going to come from God. I mean, that would shock any woman. Yeah, I get that. I fully understand that. But she come to terms with it and she said, be it unto me as you have said. But Joseph, no angel comes to him. He just has a dream. He has a dream that he is to raise the child of God. Scary? Okay. Mm. I wouldn't fancy the job myself. It's your responsibility. It must have changed Joseph, do you think, for the rest of his life? I don't think it'd ever be the same again, do you? Obviously, after the angel came, he goes back to Mary and said, you know that ridiculous story you told me that was impossible for me to believe? I know it's true. And I know I must marry you because God has told me to. So it says immediately they go off and they get the marriage thing all dealt with. What a fright for that poor man. Can't help feeling sorry for him, really. 
going along, he's a carpenter, a working man, you know, and then you're going to bring up the Son of God. It says this in Matthew 1, 20 and 21. Joseph, son of David, this is the angel speaking to them, do not be afraid. Listen, if you ever get a vision or an angel appears to you in a dream or even in reality, and he says, don't be afraid, that's the time to be afraid. Why would he say, don't be afraid? He's saying, don't be afraid, because he says, what I'm going to tell you now is going to terrify you. That's the reality of it. So what does he tell him? He says, David, uh, Joseph, don't be afraid. Son of David, don't be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He told them both this, because... He will save his people from their sins. Joseph knew exactly what that angel was meaning because he was a Jew. They were waiting for the Messiah to come, you realise? They thought the Messiah would be like a, a King David character who would release them from the captivity of the Romans and, and cause the people of God to be free and not exiled in their own country, as it were, slaves. They would be liberated. So he knew exactly what the angel was saying. He's saying, Joseph, God incarnate will be growing up in your house. The Christ, the saviour of the world, was to grow up under the tutelage of Joseph and Mary. As Jesus grew up in that home, he would have watched Joseph, like all children do. They don't say anything, but they're watching all the time. They're watching their parents, their other brothers and sisters. They're being influenced. They don't realise they've been influenced, but their thoughts, their ideas are forming in their mind. I've looked back at my life and thought, why did I think that? Oh, I know why I thought that, because my mother thought that. Why do I think that? Because my father thought that. That's why I think that. And some things I thought, well, I don't actually think that. I think differently now from what they thought. And that's not that they were wrong or I'm particularly right. It's just we grow up and we form our own opinions about things. So Jesus would have grown up looking the father, his, his guardian, his parent. He would have looked at how he cherished his wife, how he cared for her, spoke to her, how he looked after the other children in the house. Was he kind to them? Did he play with them? What was his relationship with like? How he provided and protected the home. They were difficult times, I'm sure how he conducted his carpentry business when he was a little bit older. He worked with his father, you see, for it could have been the best part of 18 years. He would have seen everything, how he, how he did business, how, how he just dealt with the stresses and the problems of daily life. He would have seen it all. He would have seen his daily worship of God, 
because the Jewish people worshipped God in their homes every day. They prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon and evening. They would recite this special thing called this, the Shema and they would make these... He would have watched his father do that all the time. He would have done it with him. <laughs> I'm sure Joseph didn't always get it right. None of us get it right, do we, every time. But what I am sure of, he was conscious of his moment-by-moment -moment responsibility to raise the Christ. He would have had that consciousness. And he was living in the presence of the child of God, constantly living in his presence. It's one thing to be a believer of Jesus. It's another thing to follow Jesus, but to live with him every day, getting up in the morning and going to bed at night every second of every moment of every day. Joseph was eating with him, sleeping with him, uh, playing, working, walking, <laughs> together all the time. As I thought about this, I, my mind went to somebody in the Old Testament who had a very similar experience to this. It reminded me of Enoch. It says of Enoch, he walked with God. A, a striking similarity between the two here. As both of them uh, parented their first child, something happened to these men that changed them for the rest of their lives. Scripture says about Enoch in Genesis 5 and 21, it says this, when Enoch had lived for 65 years, now you might think, well, he lived a long time before he had any children. Actually, it was quite quick. If you read through the you know, those early chapters. People lived to about seven, eight, nine hundred years, something like that. They usually had kids when they were about a hundred and something years of age. So he had a child fairly early on in his life. And uh, when he was taken to be with the Lord, it sort of, uh, Enoch was no more. He walked with God and he walked into the sunset. That's sort of the imagery of what we get. He, he went when he was about three hundred and something. So he went as a youngster, really, because the others lived to about 800 or something. So you get it all in proportion. Okay, so at 65 years, which was fairly young, uh, you know, relative to all the others, he has a child. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. So he didn't walk with God before he had Methuselah, because it makes the point that he walked with God after. Now, he would have been a God-fearing man. He was of the line that feared God, but he never, he never feared him in the way perhaps that he should have feared him. But as soon as he had this son, Methuselah, he walked differently. Isn't that what Joseph did? He lived as a, a righteous man, but now Jesus is on the scene. He lives quite differently. See the striking similarity after their first son appears, they act a little bit differently. 
The birth of Enoch's son completely changed his life. We're not told why, but I think we can work this one out. It says, it says that when he had the child, God told him to name him Methuselah. Methuselah means his death will bring judgment. Didn't take too much working out. And I'm sure if he told him the name, he told him what the meaning was in the name and he understood it. Enoch knew that when this boy passed away, God would judge the world. See, he could see the world getting increasingly awful in front of his eyes. And he thought, God will bring an end to this one day because it's getting out of control. And when my son dies, that's when it will happen. He didn't know if he would be alive when his son died or not. So there were two things pressing. If the end of the world is close, perhaps I better get my act together. I'm only suggesting, I don't know whether he thought that, or really, if this boy is so important to God that it is death, he will judge the world, then um, I need to be a good example. Probably I need to be a good example. Do you think that, that thought would have crossed Joseph's mind? I really need to be a good example to this boy. I think so. Well, God is extremely patient, isn't he? Because we know Methuselah lived longer than anyone else's life that is recorded. 969 years. So a thousand years before God sent the flood, he had planned it. Well, he planned things before even the creation of the world. But in his mind, he was speaking it out. I'm going to do this. You're going to have a son and I'm going to give you a thousand years to sort yourselves out on this planet. And if you don't, see, God is extremely patient and long-suffering with us. Sometimes we wish he would just get, jump on us a bit quicker, don't we? He lets us run with things, you know what I mean? And then he stops us. And we think, why didn't he just stop me years ago? Why did he let me? Because he's patient. He lets us work some stuff out with him. And of course, when Methuselah died, the flood comes and the world is judged. It says that Enoch walked with God. I wonder what that means. You ever walked with anyone? I used to look after this guy who had some uh, severe learning uh, problems. I used to take him shopping every week and uh, we'd walk to the shops. He insisted on walking behind me. I found it so infuriating. Okay, so I thought, I used to say, his name was John. I used to say, John, will you just walk with me? And of course, he'd walk a few steps and then he was behind me again. And so I used to slow down and not walk so fast. And what did John do? He slowed down as well. I just gave up in the end. I just, just, and I thought, this is frustrating. You don't want people walking behind you, do you? You want to walk, you want to walk by the side of them. If you're going to have a walk, do you walk behind someone? No, you walk by the side of them. You chat together. So when it says that Enoch walked with God, they walked together. They walked side by side. That's what walking is. He walked in agreement with him. They walked in the same direction. 
You say, well, what direction is God moving in? Well, he fills the whole universe so he doesn't move anywhere. No, in our illustration here, he's walking. He's, he's walking in opposition to sin. That's what God is, is doing. He's opposed to sin, so he's walking against it all the time. And Enoch must have walked against sin as well, uh, walking in righteousness. They walked in agreement, so... I can only imagine that means that Enoch obeyed God. He did what he said. They walked with a mutual trust. I like this. See, for God choosing to walk with him, it wasn't an arrogant walk. It wasn't a God who knew everything. It was a God who respected and loved this man and wanted to trust him and walk with him together. God trusts you, you know. He's given you giftings and certain responsibilities and he's believing in you. He is. Um, I often think of Moses. He didn't have a Moses two, did he? He only had a Moses one. So he trusted him, didn't he? He trusted that he had done a good enough job. So when he says, Moses, it's time for action and Moses says, leave me out, God says, I can't leave you out because I only got one Moses. We do this together or it doesn't happen. See, he trusts us. He's put things in us and now he has an expectation of something from us because he trusts us. You trust him, he trusts you. They kept in step with each other. That must mean that God walks slow at times, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Just to keep up with us, we have to go really slow. Sometimes you think you have to run to keep up with God. Sometimes he's moving a bit quick. I often think of Peter. Remember Peter when he goes to the garden uh, with the Lord uh, Gethsemane? I've never quite worked this one out. I must study it in some detail. He tells him to put a sword on, remember? He tells him, and then when they get out into the garden, because he pulls his sword and chops the man's ear off. He wasn't told to chop anyone's ear off, was he? He wasn't even told to do anything with the sword. He ran ahead, you see. He did what he wasn't supposed to do. And then when they arrest Jesus and take him, where is he? Is he running ahead now? Oh no, he's lagging behind now. So he doesn't get picked up and taken in. So there's a tremendous example there. Now, I love Peter dearly and I'm not making fun of him or <laughs> criticising him. I've learned not to do that. But he ran ahead and then he lagged behind. So we can all run ahead or lag behind. Then I thought this Jesus as he grew up, the roles between Jesus and Joseph sort of reversed. See, as a child, the child was dependent on the father, showing him everything and looking after him, Kevin. But as the boy starts to work with his father, what, 12 years old or something like that, starts to work in the workshop, then he becomes a teenager. He's getting tall now and strong. And Joseph is getting older and weaker. And all of a sudden, the roles are reversed. That Joseph is now living with Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful? See, he's a man. He hasn't stepped into his ministry, I know. But he's grown in stature and grace, it says, among, before God 
and before the people. Working with Jesus must have been beautiful. Seeing his grace, how he dealt with people, how he was so kind and generous. You know, sometimes we want builders to do freebies for us, don't we? You know what I mean? A bit cheaper for us. I wonder how many freebies Jesus did. I wonder they made any money at all, probably. He would, he would be so kind, so gracious, so, so honest, so straightforward. And so Joseph would have laboured with him, worked with him, see how he worked with people. Hmm. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. And my Father, my Heavenly Father, we will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What are you driving at, Phil? What's the point of all this? It's interesting, but there's got to be a point to this. Is it possible that we can have a foretaste of heaven? See, Joseph did. Enoch did, didn't he? Enoch walked with God. He must have had a foretaste of heaven. Joseph most certainly had a foretaste of heaven. Is Jesus saying, if you let me and the Father come and live with you, you can have a foretaste of heaven? But listen... It's not just a question of you believing in me or following me. It's a question of you living with me. Day after day after day. I want to play with you and eat with you and share everything with you. Whether you're watching telly, going for a walk, working, studying, everything. I want to be there. It's called the incarnation. It's what the gospel is, is all about, isn't it, in some respects? The incarnation. Joseph lived with the God-man every day of his life. Oh, how wonderful, eh? That shock when the angel first spoke to him. But what it materialised into, wouldn't it be wonderful? You see, that's what you had. You had a meeting, which was a shock to you. And that's what God wanted it to materialise into, a life lived with the Father and the Son. Remember, his desire is to live amongst us. But he says, you don't have to wait till the next world we can start it here if you want. It's up to you. We're ready to come. Simply love the Son, and by obeying him, that's how you show that you love him, and we will come and live with you. You see at the end, stepping out of this world into the next, it shouldn't be a shock. It should be a smooth transition, because we're walking with him now. We're living with him now. We're experiencing him now. And then one day we go to sleep and wake up and there he is again and nothing's changed. 
is just the same, except now we can see him in physical form, as it were. We must be careful that our shared life is not just when we read our Bible or go to church or pray or do anything else. Ooh, religious. And there's nothing wrong in religious things. They're all wonderful things. And Jesus had something of a religious life. But it's there every day. In everything. We're to enjoy his company and his friendship all the time. Every moment of every day. Living with the Lord. Everything in Joseph's life became sacred, didn't it? Because he did it with Jesus. Maybe at first it was a bit of a bind, I don't know. But just eating a meal became sacred. Playing with the kids became sacred. Being a carpenter became sacred. Banging in nails in rafters became sacred because God was there next to you doing it with you. That's the imagery, you see. That's the whole point. That's the picture. When Jesus said he wanted us to live life to the full, is this what he was driving at? I want you to live life to the full. I have come that you might have life in the full. This is possibly what he's talking about. It's a foretaste of heaven when we will physically live with the Father and the Son day after day after day after day after day. God bless you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.